0: Thank you for listening to the Chinese History Podcast. I'm Yiming Ha. And I'm Sean Cronin. So today, our topic is Zheng He, who was this unique admiral in the early Ming Dynasty who led several large-scale voyages from China into the Indian Ocean, visiting states and polities in Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East, and even Africa. And he is among the better-known Chinese individuals among Western audiences. Now, in recent decades, with China's Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative and this so-called Maritime Silk Road, studies in Zheng He has been gaining in traction, because if you look at this Maritime Silk Road, it just happens to follow the exact route that Zheng He took in his voyages. So to start off, for those in our audience who might not know who Zheng He is, can you begin by just giving a brief introduction of him?
1: Thank you so much, Jimmy. I think that this is a, a very crucial topic for the study of Chinese diplomacy in Southeast Asia in the past, and it is brought up frequently as a somewhat of a cultural topic today, because it's a way to make a motion toward the study of pre-modern Chinese diplomacy and interactions with the other outside world, while still telling a, a history that speaks to our moment today, that is a moment of recent globalization. So it's a moment of perhaps pre-globalization that people can point to and use that as a starting point for understanding something about the Ming dynasty and that period of the the 14th and 15th centuries. I'll give just a little bit of background in case anyone is unfamiliar with these Zongho voyages, and then we can have a conversation, I guess, about what's its significance, something more about the historical context and what really was going on behind these so-called Zhongha voyages.
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: Traditionally, historians have argued that Zheng he, a eunuch in the service of the Ming dynasty, was sent seven times to carry diplomatic edicts to the, the kingdoms of various Indian Ocean polities. This spanned through Southeast Asia, South Asia, all the way to the Middle East, even to the eastern coast of Africa. The time period for these missions is roughly 1405 to 1431. Each time, Zheng He would be appointed as the kind of head admiral of a diplomatic mission, together with a huge retinue of historically large number of ships, each ship being also enormous and filled with not only diplomatic personnel, but also soldiers and merchandise for trade and as diplomatic gifts to the kingdoms and to the, the rulers to which the Ming dynasty was sending these missions. In terms of um, where exactly did Zheng Ho go, the Ming documents give us quite a good sense, actually. So on the one hand, Zheng He spent quite a bit of time in diplomatic missions to Southeast Asian countries, primarily. This included particularly diplomatic missions to the Straits of Malacca. So there would be a kingdom of Palembang, a new upstart kingdom of Malacca that was at the time escaping from its hegemon, the Majapahit kingdom of Java. There are many missions sent to Sumatra and other parts of Indonesia, as well as Java, Champa on the coast of where central Vietnam is today. And later voyages would go all the way to the western end of the Indian Ocean. So, for example, Jungho would spend quite a bit of time on the western coast of India in Calicut, as well as reaching the Strait of Hormuz and traveling to Mecca at one point, and as well as a number of kingdoms in the eastern coast of Africa. So this is generally his, his itinerary.
0: And I just want to mention that these were massive fleets that were accompanied by many military and logistical vessels. These ships carried not just people and trading goods, but also horses, livestock, water, fresh produce, and fodder. And of course, you have these massive treasure ships that, if you put Columbus's ships next to them, would really make Columbus's ships look like tiny lifeboats. And as you mentioned, there were several of these voyages. So these were massive undertakings. And so that really begs the question of why did the Ming state spend so much resources sending these fleets out to visit these states?
1: Absolutely. This is a great question, Emil. And you're right that this is, in many ways, an unprecedented mobilization of resources for an overseas diplomatic mission in Chinese history. There had been previous missions of one or two ships, maybe even a slightly larger fleet, whereas it seems that, as you mentioned, Zheng He's voyages mobilized an enormous amount of resources that was extremely expensive on the treasury and, at the same time, would spend many months at each core they visited. So the question is, absolutely, why? So traditional scholarship has wrestled with this issue throughout the 20th century, and a bunch of you know new scholarship has been coming out in the 21st century to try to reassess why Zheng Huang, why these missions, why Southeast Asia, why South Asia, why the Indian Ocean world at all for the Ming. Scholars have put forth several hypotheses. The first is a relatively understandable one that the Ming wanted to make project its military power in the maritime realm. Others argue that the Yongle Emperor, that is the reigning emperor at the time, sought to use the Zhenghe voyages as an opportunity to expand commercial relations with Indian Ocean kingdoms, many of whom controlled the trading rights to important goods such as pepper, sap and wood, which was a very important wood for making a particular red dye as well as other valuable goods, such as gold and silver and, and, and various other things. There's also been somewhat more far-fetched theories. One is that the voyages were undertaken in order to obtain giraffes, which incidentally, Zheng he did indeed bring home from, from Bengal an African giraffe, which paraded around the streets of Nanjing and has become really a cultural icon.
0: Right, we have the famous painting of this Chinese courtier holding this giraffe as it was being presented to the Yongle Emperor. The Chinese thought the giraffe was the Qilin, which was this mythical Chinese creature. They thought it was the Qilin.
1: Exactly. There's also been other kind of far-fetched theories that the Yongle Emperor was sending missions out to go search for his nephew, who had previously been emperor and who the Yongle Emperor had deposed. So he had formed his coup against his own nephew, but no one knew where the nephew went after that. So some some theorized that he was going out to Southeast Asia to search for him. I think that the the, the current state of scholarship on Chong has pretty thoroughly disproven some of the more far-fetched theories. This was an enormous mobilization of human labor and resources, as we mentioned before. And so it's worth taking seriously as a significant diplomatic move and questioning what goals particularly was the Ming state trying to achieve with these various missions. So with that, I think it's important to make several points. The first is that Zheng he was only one of many unique diplomats of the Yongle reign. So he might have been the most famous and the most trusted one amongst them because he was sent out at least six times according to the Ming records. And some scholars allege that a seventh mission did occur. But there were also a number of other eunuchs who were used by the Yola court for diplomatic purposes, not only to visit Indian Ocean polities, but also to visit other polities in Southeast Asia via the overland routes. So places such as various Thai kingdoms along the Shan states today, the Yola Emperor would send a number of eunuchs Diplomats to go and deliver edicts to these kingdoms as well. So it's part of a broader diplomatic trend at the beginning of the 15th century. Whereas in today's world, it gets told as really the myth of this one eunuch who goes out and it discovers the Indian Ocean. But really, it, it is more, he's one diplomat working in a larger system. Another point is that that's important to make is that these were not unprecedented. While unprecedented in scale, these missions were not unprecedented in the goals they were trying to achieve. So already in the late 14th century, the Ming Dynasty had begun to make diplomatic overtures to many Southeast Asian states, primarily states that had ocean access and were involved in maritime trade. So perhaps it's worth reconsidering Zheng He and his Indian Ocean voyages, not as an aberration in Chinese history, a move toward the maritime in contrast to a generally agrarian-focused state. Rather, it might be better for us to understand Zheng He voyages as part of a larger wave of diplomatic engagement, not only with East Asia, but Southeast Asia, South Asia, and all the way over to, to Africa. So I am inclined to see Zheng He and his treasure fleet As part of a process that goes back all the way, actually, to the Mongol invasion throughout Eurasia.
0: Yeah, and I think you make an excellent point there because there has been this tendency to see China as this closed off agrarian society that is not very engaged with the maritime world, especially when it comes to the Ming dynasty. And I recall reading this opinion piece a couple years back where the writer argued that the Great Wall of China was a sign of Chinese isolationism and xenophobia, which is just frankly speaking not true. And I think you bring up a great point that the Zheng He voyages were part of this broader attempt to engage with the maritime world both diplomatically and commercially.
1: Absolutely. That couldn't be more true in my opinion. And that's the reason, I think, that Zheng he has reemerged as a topic. One might ask, why is a single diplomat getting this much coverage in secondary scholarship? And among amateur historians, museums, and various other exhibitions, government initiatives, there's a lot of focus on Junpa these days, despite him being just one guy. And the reason is precisely what you say. This represents a period of sustained Chinese engagement with Afro-Eurasia, which begs the question, of course, what were the goals, diplomatically, that he was supposed to be reaching or enforcing in, in, in any given case? So in many cases in China, Zheng Hu is seen as a cultural ambassador, somebody who represents the friendship between China and Southeast Asian countries, South Asian countries, etc. Meanwhile, many scholars in the West have been questioning just how friendly the Zheng He voyages were to begin with, and there's a lot of debates on all sides. Some even argue that Zheng He's voyages in the Indian Ocean could have become something akin to the Portuguese colonization of Malacca and, and other areas. While I'm certainly glad to see people moving in the direction of seeing Chinese history as world history in this case, I think rather than looking later to the European age of exploration and colonialism, it's better to look instead to the world historical context of Zheng He and the Ming Court itself, which is the legacy of the Mongol Empire and the Yuan Dynasty. So perhaps the debate about whether or not Zheng He was an ambassador of friendship or not, is something that can be put on the back burner for a minute while we consider what were they trying to do.
0: And since you bring up the Mongol Empire and Mongol legacy, I think it's worth talking a little bit about that. What exactly was the legacy that the Mongols bequeathed to China after the Mongol Empire collapsed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Mongols under Chinggis Khan and his son and successor, uh, Uyade Khan, throughout most of the early 13th century, had invaded or secured the submission of many states in Eurasia. There are letters surviving between Mongol Khans and the popes in Europe. The Mongols conquered much of the kind of heartland of Eurasia. Persia and China, for example, two of the wealthiest agrarian societies in Eurasia at the time. By the time Kublai Khan came to power in 1260 via a civil war with his brother, Eric Bukha. Many of the areas that had not been submitted to the Mongols, though, were actually in Southeast Asia or Maritime East Asia. After declaring the formation of the Yuan dynasty in 1271 and essentially establishing the China branch of the Mongol corporation, as it were, Kublai Khan then began an attempt to secure the submission of states overseas as well. States such as Japan, Java, that had in past centuries enjoyed diplomatic communication with previous Chinese states, such as the Tang Dynasty, for example. So in 1274 and 1281, Kublai's armies attempted failed invasions of Japan. And I'm sure our good friend and colleague Nina Nia can say more about that in a future episode. And then in 1293, Kublai's armies invaded Java, the Majapahit kingdom in Java, and that also was a historic failure. So the Mongol legacy in Eurasia was one of unity, of bringing the entirety of at least most of the Eurasian heartland under Chinggisid rule, Central Asia, East Asia, the Middle East. Yet at the same time, in the maritime realm, it was one of unfinished business. Japan had never officially recognized the Mongols as the official UN dynasty. And although several Southeast Asian states, such as Java and, and Siam, did indeed often send envoys to the UN court in Daidu or Beijing today, it certainly was not under the circumstances that the UN rulers would have wanted and that they often got from states that they could threaten with military force, such as Goryeo or Korea and many Central Asian states. So in terms of the interstate environment, While the Mongols had indeed secured the submission of many of China's overland neighbors, they'd been much less successful in the maritime realm, which begins to kind of set the table for the Ming's diplomatic overtures in
0: the 15th century. So that brings up another interesting question because the Yongle Emperor was the one who sent these treasure fleets out to Southeast Asia, but also, as you mentioned, to other parts of the world as well. But before him, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, The Hongwu Emperor had tried very hard to restrict maritime interactions. He wanted all diplomatic embassies and trade to be conducted through what scholars today would call the tributary system. He forbid Chinese people from going overseas, and he also forbid his successors from using eunuchs as officials. But the Yongle Emperor overturns all that. Not only does he send these treasure fleets overseas, but he also puts eunuchs in charge of them. Why do you think that was? Why do you think there was such a disjuncture between the Hongwu and Yongle Reigns?
1: I think this is one place where new scholarship can really make an impact. So as you mentioned, the current narrative of the Ming is that the founder, Zhu Yanzhang, who takes the title of the Hongwu Emperor, is somewhat of a proto-Han nationalist. And he throws out the Mongols, he reestablishes China for Han people, and he bans border crossing and maritime trade. So, with regard to the so-called maritime ban, so that is a prohibition on unauthorized merchant ships going to sea, specifically with the goal of arriving at a foreign country and engaging in trade there. So, this this was issued in 1371, 1372, and has become somewhat of a hot topic in. Ming studies, because it it seems to represent for many people this isolationism, a move back to the agrarian lifestyle, etc. And certainly, the Ming founder, Zhu Yanzhang, or the Hongwu Emperor, was at the same time sponsoring a lot of agricultural reformation projects. However, I think we might be overstating the case if we consider the Ming maritime ban as a a sign of anti-foreignism. First of all, many of the statutes of the Ming Maritime Band were actually borrowed from the Yuan dynasty. Really, the Mongols had, in many ways, paved the road for Zhu Yuanzhang's particular maritime policies. And this essentially boils down to, if you do not get a permit from the local government, there's no way you, you can be allowed to go abroad to do trade. Think of it like passports today. You can't just go get in a rowboat and go to whatever country you like and start buying and selling, there are, you know, processes you have to go through. Nevertheless, it is certainly true that the Ming restricted access by private individuals to foreign countries to an unprecedented level, especially in the whole emperor's reign. And this has been explained through a number of ways, most notably that the Ming coasts at the time were often victims to pirate attacks by so-called Japanese pirates, which incidentally, scholars have found were not all Japanese, but essentially lived in islands and caves uh, off the China coast, generally the East China coast, and would engage in a lot of kind of pillaging of coastal cities in order to support their, their operations. So one of the goals of the maritime ban was to prevent people from going abroad to join these pirate bands. Another reason for the Ming maritime ban was that Zhu Yuanzhang's ascent to power was definitely not unopposed. There were many other, we could call them warlords or strongmen, particularly in South China and in Central China at that time, that were all competing to be the next rulers of a potentially unified Chinese dynasty. In the wake of the slow collapse of the Yuan state beginning in the 1350s, many of these warlords relied quite a bit on maritime shipping and coastal fortifications for their home bases. And so, in a way, after taking power, it makes quite a bit of sense actually that the Ming founder should restrict access by private individuals, mostly southern Chinese, who live in the area already, because there's always the risk that they might go and join one of his rivals as well. So there's a security interest at stake for the Ming
0: maritime ban. So just to summarize, the maritime ban was not at all representative of the Ming as a xenophobic and isolationist state shut off the foreign interactions. Instead, there were reasons why the ban was in place, and it certainly wasn't to cut off diplomatic and commercial links. Instead, it was to channel them through official state avenues where the state can better control and manage these diplomatic and commercial links.
1: And with regard to the second part of your question about the Hongwu legacy going into the turn of the 15th century, the coup against the Hongwu emperor's immediate successor, the Jinwen emperor, and then the establishment of the Yongle Emperor, that is the patron of Zhenghua, as the new emperor of China. This is a very important question. And scholars often think that the Zhenghua missions represent a reversal of a policy of seclusion. I would make the point that the Hongwu Emperor's official diplomatic engagement with Southeast Asia actually was the predecessor to the Zhenghua missions. And to understand this, you have to understand something about the diplomatic environment of the Yuan Ming transition. This was a world in which the recognition of your neighbors was crucial to the establishment of a functional unified state on any level. And other scholars, such as David Robinson, have shown there were a number of states that actually did not recognize the Ming early on. Most notably, Goryeo, the dynasty ruling Korea at the time. In the 1380s, Goryeo was actually overtaken by a wave of anti-Ming, pro-Yuan sentiment at the highest levels. So, in other words, the support of one's neighbors was not something that one could take for granted as a hopeful new ruler of China. And so the Ming founder found himself in a position where many of the states that had previously been deeply engaged with the Yuan court, Korea for one, Dai Viet in Vietnam, as well as many states of Central Asia, were in many cases more willing to take the side of the fallen Yuan court than they were to adjust to the Ming cause. However, Zhu Yanzhang found that actually it was Southeast Asian maritime states and East Asian maritime states that were most receptive to his message, especially states that were kind of upstarts or newcomers in their relative areas and had not enjoyed very close contacts with the Yan. So, if one goes and examines the Ming records very carefully, one finds that the closest trading partners and diplomatic partners of the Hongwu court were actually the Ryukyu Kingdom in what is now Okinawa, Japan, Siam. As well as states in Indonesia. And then moving into the Yolla reign, particularly the new Sultanate of Malacca, that relied on being supported to defend itself against the traditional hegemons of the Straits area, namely the Javanese Machapahit Kingdom. So interestingly, we find here a Chinese state trying to establish itself in the region and relying actually primarily on the recognition. Of states that did not use classical Chinese, at least not yet in the case of Ryukyu, for their diplomatic engagement, and did not have a long history of diplomatic engagement with China or with the Mongol Empire. So then in that sense, I would say that the Zheng he missions represent an expansion of the original Hongwu project, not a reversal of his policies.
0: I think that is a very interesting point, but I do have a question. You just mentioned that after the Mongol Empire fell, the Hongwu and Yongle emperors depended on recognition from these other states for their legitimacy, and so they dispatched embassies to these states. But what did these states have to gain from recognizing the Ming? Certainly, Zheng He's fleet was large and intimidating, but compared to the European voyages, they were relatively more peaceful. There were episodes of violence, and Zheng He did use military force in some places, but overall, they were relatively peaceful. So what were the benefits for these other states?
1: That's a great question, Yimian. And implicit in that question is the recognition that states could refuse to acknowledge the, the legitimacy of the man. And this is a, a reality Zhu Yanzhong had to deal with. One of his rivals, for example, a warlord by the name of Chen Liang, once he established his short-lived, revived Han dynasty, and, and he was very quickly defeated by the man, but while he was declaring himself as a potential emperor of China, one of his first acts was actually to send an embassy to Vietnam and ask for recognition and military assistance. And he was turned down. So this is a real issue in terms of understanding the diplomatic environment at the time. So to speak specifically to the Zhonghe missions, which brought the Ming court in into contact with many states that had either never engaged on an official level with a Chinese dynasty or had only infrequent ties with the Yuan court, it definitely is worth considering, you know, what are they getting out of this? And I think the easy answer is a trading partner. Zheng ships were filled to the brim with Chinese goods for foreign consumption, most notably silk of many different types in shapes and colors and sizes that would be well-received in Indian Ocean courts. And at the same time, Zheng He and his crew would also be key buyers for many of the Indian Ocean products, such as pepper, which was one of the the main exports of the kingdom of Calicut, for example. So there's this commercial connection. But at the same time, it is important to recognize some of the new scholarship that's come out about Zheng he, the marshal diplomat, right? So he does not just go with, with fruits and, and silks and say, welcome, please trade with us. Many of the treasure ships were filled not only with treasure, but, but also with soldiers. He had his own army unit, and it's not entirely clear how big this force was. So for example, in 1424, when the Yongle Emperor died, his army was actually stationed to protect Nanjing from a potential coup. So this was a standing force that could be used to reach a number of main goals. During the Yongle reign, when Jong was going out to the Indian Ocean with this military force, they actually did get into a number of military engagements with Indian Ocean actors. So in the first mission, between 1405 and 1407, Zheng he reports back to the emperor that he and his fleet stormed a Chinese pirate base in Palembang in Malaysia and deposed the pirate king. In the second voyage, when going by a kingdom in Sri Lanka, after a particularly rude welcome by the Sri Lankan king, Zheng's forces did engage in a battle with him and actually brought him forcibly back to the Ming court to face the Yongle Emperor and so-called atone for his crimes. And then in another voyage, they bring a usurper of the Sumatran throne back to the Ming court. So in a way, Zhong is is a bringer of trade, he's a bringer of economic opportunity, but he's also, in a way, a policeman trying to, in a way, assert Ming presence in the region and defeat Ming enemies, ones that were endangering the Ming's diplomatic goals.
0: So in a way, then, these kingdoms, if they recognized the Ming, they could depend on Ming military power for support. So it was not only about trade, but it was also beneficial for their own internal security and legitimacy. Absolutely. So the case
1: of Malacca is very instructive here. So as as I mentioned, Malacca was, was really only founded at the turn of the 15th century, like 1399, 1400, when a local ruler from Java moved to the area to essentially find a place where he and his personal followers could have their own state. And it can be argued relatively successfully, I think, that the survival of the Malacca Sultan Age, at least in the early years, was very much reliant on Ming power. So some maps of Zheng He's voyages actually indicate that there might have been stationed in, or at least right outside of Malacca, a Ming garrison a Ming military garrison. And similarly, Cochin on the western coast of India was another state that received very kind of special treatment by the Ming against Calicut. And they received a rock inscription stelae that had inscribed on it the Ming emperor's promise to protect Cochin and endorse the legitimacy of its ruler, and so on and so forth. So one of the goals for the Ming here was, in a sense, to protect its allies. And its allies were often these upstart, new-to-the-scene states that could essentially very quickly become reliant on Ming power and thus give in to many Ming diplomatic goals.
0: Yeah, and I think you raise a lot of points about the Ming and about Ming diplomacy with Southeast Asia that is really worthy of further investigation. And I hope in the future we can talk a little bit more about them. But with regard to Zheng He, As you said in the introduction, these voyages lasted only about two decades. After the Yongle Emperor died, these voyages were stopped, these treasure fleets were left rotting and then destroyed, and a lot of the records were lost. And so why did these voyages stop? If the goal was to open commerce, if the goal was to project Ming power and legitimacy, why did the Ming put an end to these voyages?
1: That's a great question, and one that's really puzzled historians. Some historians even argue that had the Ming diplomatic missions to Indian Ocean states continued, the Ming could have become a maritime power that would have been able to repel the Portuguese and the Dutch and the European powers who would come in the 16th and 17th centuries. Everyone wonders, why give up sea power when you just accomplished it? And I think there's many answers. So first of all, in 1424, when the Yola Emperor dies, the missions are temporarily halted. Until 1430, when Zheng he is once again, for the last time, sent overseas. One explanation for this pause is that the Yongle Emperor's immediate successors, his son, the Hongxi Emperor, and then his grandson, the Xuanda Emperor, were in mourning for their fathers. And it would have been uncouth to spend an enormous amount of money to have ambassadors from Siam and Calicut and Eastern Africa go have a huge party at the main court when the emperor is in mourning for his father. So that's one, that's one reason that I don't see talked about so much in the secondary scholarship. Most scholars see the stoppage of the Junkho voyages as an indication of the victory of Confucian officials over the martial emperors who had been inspired by the dynasty legacy to engage in martial spectacles abroad and diplomatic missions. There's some truth to this. But it's worth recognizing that the Zhenghua voyages did actually have an enormous impact throughout the entire first half of the 15th century on Ming diplomacy with South and Southeast Asia. You have missions from South Asian kingdoms still arriving at the Ming court in 1450. So the memory of Zhenghua remained very much alive all the way up through the mid 15th century, even as the Ming was no longer actively pursuing its previous diplomatic goals. So while certainly the perspective that says that this is the, the victory of an agrarian-focused Confucian anti-commercial scholar official elite over a sort of cast of emperor that wants to advertise his power abroad, certainly, you know, that's an approach that is understandable and has some truth to it. But I think that we shouldn't undervalue exactly what Jungho was meant to do in the first place and how he did it. Additionally, after 1449, when the Ming Emperor was actually captured and kidnapped on a campaign by a Mongol leader, Essen, the Ming's diplomatic focus turned very much away from the outside world, particularly the maritime world in Southeast Asia, to defending its frontiers, trying to re-establish a, not only a functional government, but a government that can protect Ming territory. But in effect, from the Ming founding in 1368 to the 1450s, when the last Indian Ocean embassies are arriving in Beijing, we have almost a century of sustained Ming engagement with South and Southeast Asia. And it's just, I think, that the Ming's diplomatic and governmental goals had just shifted by that time. In other words, the goal was never to establish lasting sea power forever, to predate the Portuguese or Dutch voyages, which, of course, no one at the time knew was even possible, but rather was to achieve immediate diplomatic goals. And after the Ming had achieved a sustained recognition for almost a century by states throughout Eurasia and throughout the maritime and overland realms, it was no longer seen as a priority to be constantly in contact with Calicut, with the eastern coast of Africa, in the Straits of Hormuz, etc. So it makes sense in that sense that the Indian Ocean voyages were eventually brought to a stop.
0: Yeah, and I think another possible reason was that these voyages were just wildly expensive. If you look at what the Yongle Emperor accomplished, aside from sending these voyages out, he also engaged in numerous military campaigns, massive military campaigns against the Mongols, He invaded and conquered Annam, which is the northern part of Vietnam. He relocated the capital to Beijing and essentially reconstructed the city. And he rebuilt the Grand Canal. All of these were expensive ventures, and the voyages, despite opening up diplomatic and commercial links, really didn't generate enough revenue to justify keeping them up. So combined with all the reasons you mentioned, it made sense for the Ming to stop them. Not because the Ming suddenly turned isolationist, but because there were practical reasons to stop them on the one hand. And on the other hand, as you mentioned, the Ming had already achieved many of its aims.
1: Absolutely. And, and cost is, in many ways, one of the biggest factors. My sense is that the jungle voyages were almost always at the financial loss. It was an expenditure. It was not the case that the amount of pepper and sapin wood that you buy abroad will actually get back the capital you spend to create these ships and pay for labor and food and all of the lavish gifts. So absolutely, and particularly for a state that is trying to double down on its commitment to the peasantry and to an agrarian lifestyle that can actually support the survival of the Ming Dynasty going forward, it makes sense that these sorts of really lavish missions were no longer to carry out, just as you say.
0: Yeah, and as we get into the 16th and 17th centuries, The Ming once again becomes more involved with the maritime world, but this time it was through private merchants and not through state-sponsored voyages. And perhaps we can talk a little bit more about this in a future episode. So that concludes our episode today. Thank you so much, Sean, for introducing us to these new perspectives and new scholarships on Zheng He and the voyages. It was certainly very, very interesting, and I believe corrects a lot of the misconceptions people have about Zheng He.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk about this really incredibly interesting episode in Ming history. And I very much look forward to coming back on the show again sometime soon.
0: So that concludes our episode today. Thank you so much for listening to the Chinese History Podcast, and we'll see you next time.